Welcome to the 2024 Litigation Forecast podcast series, where our litigation and dispute resolution team shares its predictions and recommendations for business in the year ahead, brought to you by Minter Ellison Rudwatts. I'm your host, Andrew Horn, a partner in our litigation team in Auckland, and today I'm joined by Joy Gore, a senior solicitor in our team. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about cyber breaches and what companies in New Zealand should be thinking about in terms of how to protect themselves in the first instance, and also how to deal with a breach if one happens. Now, we're not IT specialists, so this isn't a technical discussion. We're looking at it more from a business and legal perspective. Uh, For instance, one of the things we'll be talking about is how you can protect reports which are prepared following a cyber breach, drawing on some key lessons from a recent decision from the Optus class action in Australia. Before we begin, please note that nothing we're saying today is legal advice, and all information in this podcast is correct as at the date of recording, which was 9 February 2024. Joy, do you want to kick us off? Sure, Andy. So cyber risk is among the top risks facing businesses today, and it's not going away anytime soon. Over the last few years, there has been an increasing prevalence of cyber attacks with wide scale and damaging impacts. These impacts include reputational damage, disruption in operations, liability to customers and third parties, as well as regulatory action and fines. New Zealand businesses reported 39.6 million in losses from cybercrime in the last two years leading up to 2023. And that's just those who reported their losses. And internationally, cybercrime is estimated to cost businesses 10.5 trillion annually by 2025. Well, that's a lot of money. Have you got any examples? So yes, there has actually been a few high-profile incidents, both in New Zealand and Australia, over the last two years. In the October 2022 data breach of Metabank, attackers obtained the credentials of a third-party contractor, and that resulted in the leak of the personal information of 9.7 million customers. And since then, two consumer class actions have been filed in the Federal Court of Australia, and two shareholder class actions filed in the Victorian Supreme Court. Both sets of class actions have been consolidated into a single set of proceedings for each court. A representative complaint has also been made to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner for breaches of the Privacy Act. And our listeners would probably know that in New Zealand, uh, the Latitude cyber attack in March last year exposed the personal records of 14 million customers including a million New Zealand driver's licenses numbers and 40,000 passport records. The New Zealand Privacy Commissioner and the Australian Information Commissioner commenced a joint privacy investigation. A $1 million lawsuit has also been filed by one of the customers affected and registrations are open for a potential class action against Latitude. Do we think New Zealand companies are doing enough to protect themselves against these sorts of risks? I think the answer to that is probably not. According to an Institute of Directors and ASB survey, just 54% of directors reported their boards regularly discussed cyber risk and are confident that the organisations have the capacity to respond. This is just not enough. Today we will discuss some key considerations for how directors and boards should mitigate against cyber security risks and respond to a cyber incident if one occurs. We've produced guidance on this before. So for instance, in our recent cover-to-cover insurance publication, which is available on our website, 
we discussed the increasing expectation from regulators, such as the Reserve Bank and the FMA, that regulated firms enhance their cyber resilience. Well, let's look now at how companies can manage their cyber risk. Some top tips. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission, which lawyers call ASIC, has set out some useful guidelines for good practice and cyber resilience, which you can find on their website. And they've said that good cybersecurity strategy and governance tend to be characterised by board ownership of the issue and responsive and agile governance models. New Zealand's Institute of Directors also has a useful practical guide to cyber risk on their website. So have a look at those. But here are our top tips. Number one is establish an enterprise-wide cyber risk management framework. Boards have a responsibility to hold management to account and make sure that they establish a fully integrated organisational approach to cybersecurity. This isn't a risk that you can deal with by looking at one or two areas of your business. You have to approach cybersecurity as an enterprise-wide risk, not just an IT issue. That's a good point, Andy. I think the second thing is you have to give cybersecurity regular attention on the agenda of the board and continue to build cyber competency. So while directors do not need to be cyber experts, they do need to have a sufficient level of understanding to stay on top of key risks and issues. You need to ensure there is a cybersecurity expertise at senior management levels and also that senior management updates to the board on any key changes to cyber vulnerabilities or the wider cyber risk environment. We suggest you refer to the Institute of Directors' guidance on reporting cybersecurity to boards on how to improve cybersecurity reporting. Now, I would say this as a lawyer, but the next tip is understand the legal environment. It is important that directors understand their legal responsibilities and the implications of cyber risk relevant to their firm and keep abreast of changing regulatory areas. Regulators like the FMA, then the Privacy Commissioner, and also insurers might require notification or investigation of cyber and privacy breach incidents. We also suggest that you identify, categorise and address the risks. This means identifying which cyber risks to avoid, accept, mitigate or transfer through insurance. You want to come up with specific plans associated with each approach. Develop a cyber risk appetite in alignment with your organisation's strategy and resource allocation. We suggest you refer to CERT-NZ's 11 top tips for cybersecurity for some practical guidance. And CERT is New Zealand's Computer Emergency Response Team's website. Firms can also improve their cyber risk management with organisational changes to ensure that their processes are up to date. So we think directors should consider a few key areas. One is regular reviews and assurance Conduct regular reviews of cybersecurity strategies and security audits to identify vulnerabilities. And think about the potential impact of a cyber attack. The second is strong cultural focus and training. It's often said that the weakest point in an organisation with respect to cyber risk are its people. So effective cyber resilience requires a strong cultural focus driven by board and management and reflected in organisation-wide programmes for staff. That's awareness, education, and uh, what's really important is some random testing from time to time with staff and third parties that you rely upon to make sure that people are aware of cyber risks. They know not to click on the link. It's also important to invest in cyber infrastructure. You need robust cybersecurity measures, including firewalls, encryption, intrusion detection systems, and secure backup systems. And they all need to be kept up to date. 
the cyber criminals are constantly moving the goalposts and firms need to keep up with them. You also need to manage third-party risks. It's not enough just to look after your own shop. It's important to conduct due diligence, such as independent security attestation reports and certifications, and impose contract terms on suppliers to make sure that they understand what they need to do to protect themselves and thereby protect you. It's also important to ensure a comprehensive cyber and data breach response plan is in place. In the event of a cyber breach, an assessment and remediation of the breach will likely be most effective and credible in the eyes of stakeholders, such as the Privacy Commissioner, if undertaken within the context of a tested data breach response plan. The New Zealand Privacy Commissioner and the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner have set out four key steps in dealing with a privacy breach. And those are contain, assess, notify, prevent and review. Let's look now at what to do to respond to a cyber incident. If a cyber incident happens, it's important to be prepared and not be caught by surprise. Firms that haven't planned for an incident tend to perform really badly. They waste time and energy working out what to do. And meanwhile, the attacker carries on disrupting their services or accessing their confidential data. So let's have a look at some key steps and considerations that could form part of a cyber response plan to be ready for this when it happens. Number one is identify and contain the breach to prevent further data loss. And this might involve taking affected systems offline or restricting access. You then want to assess the impact. This means determining what data has been compromised, how many individuals are affected, and what the potential consequences could be. This will help in coming up with an appropriate response. Thirdly, think about notifying relevant parties. If the breach meets the threshold of serious harm under the Privacy Act, Organisations are required to notify the Privacy Commissioner and affected individuals as soon as reasonably practicable. We have a podcast on our website, www.minterellison.co.nz, which sets out the various factors that should be considered when assessing that serious harm threshold. Look for our Tech Suite series, and it's a podcast by Richard Wells and Susie McMillan. You then want to investigate and remediate. So that means investigating how the breach happened and take active steps to fix those vulnerabilities and prevent further breaches. You should also keep proper records. Keep records of the assessment of the breach, your response and any remediation. And this is particularly important if later on your firm is called upon to justify not reporting a breach because you've made the assessment that it's unlikely to cause someone serious harm. Remember though that any documents you create could be disclosable uh, unless they're legally privileged. So make sure that everyone is comfortable, that everyone, everything they're writing down, they'd be very happy if it got seen by a regulator or a judge. So that's why it's important to carefully consider privilege issues. Privileged documents may be withheld in litigation or during a regulatory investigation. But it's critical that the right steps are taken before and during a cyber incident to maintain and avoid accidentally waiving privilege. When a cyber incident occurs, one of the things that companies often do is decide to get an independent report commissioned by an independent investigation, whether by an IT expert or a consulting firm, to look at the incident, work out what they might have done better uh, and how they can improve their systems to stop it happening again. And that's sensible enough. But do you really want to have to disclose that report to people who are suing you? It's going to identify everything that was done wrong, and it might criticise your firm, and that might play into the hands of your opponents. 
Joy, there's a recent High Court of Australia judgment on this, isn't there? Yes, there is, Andy, and that's um, from the Optus class action, which many of our listeners would have heard of. In September 2022, Optus, the Australian communications services provider, suffered a massive data breach that affected the personal information of up to 10 million customers. Optus then engaged external lawyers to provide legal advice and instructed Deloitte to conduct a forensic review of the attack and completed a report. So following these events, a class action claim was brought against Optus in the Federal Court of Australia, alleging that it failed to protect or take reasonable steps to protect customers' personal information. And so naturally, the Deloitte's forensic review would have resulted in information relevant to the class action claim. However, Optus refused to discover the report and similar documents, asserting that they were subject to legal professional privilege. Joy, it might help if we just give a brief overview of the different types of legal privilege and the type that the Optus claim is all about. So communications will typically be privileged where they take place with a legal advisor for the purpose of giving or receiving legal advice. Communications may also be privileged where they are made for the dominant purpose of preparing for an anticipated proceeding. However, communications made for alternative purposes or communications that are not intended to be confidential will not be privileged. So Optus lost its claim for legal professional privilege over the Deloitte report. Why did that happen and what could they have done better to protect it? So for a cyber breach investigation report to be protected by legal professional privilege under Australian law, the report must have been a confidential communication prepared for the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or preparing for legal proceedings. In this case, the court found that the Deloitte report did not meet that test as it was prepared primarily for other purposes. And those other purposes included identifying the circumstances and root causes of the attack for management purposes and rectification, as well as reviewing Optus's cyber risk management policies and processes. Now, what was especially damning for Optus was the fact that the evidence all pointed to other purposes being the primary drivers of the decision to commission the report. Optus published various media statements explaining that it was appointing Deloitte to, and I quote, conduct an independent external review of the recent cyber attack. And that review would help to understand how the attack occurred and how it would be prevented from happening again. And the review would help inform the response to the incident for Optus and may also help others in the private and public sector. Well, it's a little hard to see how it can help others in the private and public sector if you refuse to provide it. So that probably wasn't helpful. Will this be the same in New Zealand? So there's actually some differences in the law governing legal advice privilege in New Zealand and Australia. In New Zealand, the statutory definition of legal advice privilege makes no mention of the need for a dominant purpose. It's not actually clear whether the New Zealand courts will take a similar approach to Australia. And as a matter of best practice, it is prudent to ensure that if you do intend to claim legal advice privilege over certain communications or documents, that your internal and external communications reflect this as a primary purpose for preparing the communications. There's another difference between New Zealand and Australia too. Under New Zealand's Evidence Act, legal professional privilege appears to relate only to communications between a lawyer and a client, and it doesn't necessarily relate to communications between a third party, such as an expert, and a client. There are some exceptions where the expert is acting as the agent of the client or, um, or of a lawyer for that purpose, but that hasn't really been tested. 
So there is a risk that in getting a third-party expert report done in New Zealand, you might struggle to get it covered by legal professional privilege. You might, however, be able to protect it with litigation privilege, because if you contemplate even early on that a claim is going to be made against you and the report is made for the dominant purpose of preparing to defend that claim, then it can be privileged. But this area is a minefield. It's very risky to prepare a report that might be critical of you, not knowing whether or not you have to disclose it. What the Optus case also shows is that the evidence which demonstrates this purpose, this primary purpose, is important and will be scrutinised by the court. Often, privilege is not front of mind when a cyber incident happens, but it's really important that it is given priority. So before commissioning a report, boards and senior management should think about whether the report can be one that is for the dominant purpose of instructing lawyers, so it can be privileged. And later on, consideration can be given to preparing any additional reports that the company may want to disclose to other people. Thanks, Joy. If you want to read more about this, you can refer to our litigation forecast article on our website, www.minterallison.co.nz, which sets out some best practice guidelines for directors and boards on managing cyber risks and some key steps and considerations that should form part of a cyber response plan. Well, that's all we've got time for today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review or follow Minterallison Rudwatts wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at minterallison.co.nz.